You're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode, we have an author chat with Kara Tanamachi, uh, the author of the second year single, A New Rock Home, that just came out. Yeah, just in time for Valentine's Day, which is a very crucial part of this book. It is about someone who was anti Valentine's Day and sort of got convinced that Valentine's Day might not be as bad as she thought. <laughs> yeah, the, the story follows the main character, Sora, who is a writer who starts a hashtag movement to go single for February in the wake of a messy breakup. You can definitely see the rom-com machinations, but it's also a story about um, Sora learning to love herself, um, learning about self-care and overcoming her own self-esteem issues as well. Yeah, I mean, I was really reminded of 10 Things I Hate About You, uh, in this book, a lot of like the old uh, 90s and early 2000s rom-coms. So if you are a fan of those, uh, this might be your book. Yeah. Who doesn't love reading rom-coms during Valentine's Is that a thing? Is, is, is reading romances around Valentine's Day a thing? I mean, there's a reason why like rom-coms come out during Christmas and during... <laughs> um, Valentine's Day. So yeah, we chat with Kara about her book, about how she became an author, and also touch a little bit about her Japanese-American family history as well. So uh, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Kara Tanamachi. And we are here with Kara Tanamachi, the author of the second year single, a new um, rom-com that's coming out on the 31st. Uh, welcome to the show, Kara. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm yeah. excited to be yeah. here. <laughs> um, to get started, we always love to, um, you know, since we are a podcast uh, focusing on Asian and Asian American authors, we always love to hear, you know, your story of how you became an author and how you got started writing specifically romances and rom-coms. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've I've always it started with the love of reading. Like I, I've just always loved to read, and um, I would read everything I could get my hands on, and and I always I always wanted to write. And in fact, um, I I grew up in Texas. Um, I, on my dad's side, I'm fourth generation uh, Japanese American, and on my mom's side, there's Irish, English, Scottish. Texan. I don't know how I even put that. And uh, so uh, I had an interesting upbringing. But um, in middle school, I wrote a short story that my English teacher thought I had plagiarized. So and I hadn't. Uh, it was it was all about unicorns and uh, a group of unicorns versus uh, Pegasus. And so, but she still, she still thought I, I had uh, uh, plagiarized it somehow, but um, I'm so grateful to my parents and my mom, especially who said, well, this means that maybe you're good at writing, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you're good at writing. Maybe you should write. So yeah. 
was that like it was so good there was no way a child wrote this or <laughs> did you... I mean looking at it now wow. um wow. you know I I it was pretty clear to me that you know a 12 year old wrote it but <laughs> but um I just had such a love of writing and um I always wanted to write fiction uh I went to the to the University of Pennsylvania though and my my dad being uh very pragmatically um an you know an Asian American doctor you know was like well but what are you going to do in the meantime? Like what, you know, what are you really going to do? Because you can't just write novels, and, you know, and expect to make a living and you're not coming back home. So, you know, what are you going to do? So I, I was a journalist for a while and, uh, you know, I said, dad, no, I can, I can get a job with my English degree. <laughs> so I was, I was a journalist for a while and then a marketing writer and uh, but I, I always um, I always loved rom coms and and romances. I'm I'm a sucker for uh, a happy happily ever after ending. And uh, I don't know. I feel like I um, you know the the world could use a little more joy, especially these days. So <laughs> you know I uh, I like putting more of that in the world. And uh, during when I was uh, a marketing writer, I wrote my first novel. Um, I do, but I don't. Um, and. Uh, um, Worked on that for a while while I had my day job and had a friend of mine who was uh, very encouraging and sort of was my writing cheerleader during that time and um, helped help me finish because I had that problem with finishing. I would start a project, stop, start, <laughs> stop, start, stop. And she was finally the one that's like, no, I think you should finish this one. This is the one you should finish. And uh, I published that under um, uh, a different name, Kara Lockwood. My my maiden name is Kara Tanamachi and I got married, uh, and Carol Lockwood was my um, first married married name, and uh, divorced and married again. So now I'm back to uh, my maiden name, Kara Tanamachi. I mean, I noticed that you you you've written not a few books as Carol Lockwood, over thirty um, books. Yes, yeah, that's right. I've been busy. I've been busy. <laughs> like, has your dad come around, or is he still thinking it's like not a real job? You know, he's come around, and it's it's funny too because. Um, he he's he's like now my biggest fan. Even even some of even some of the books that are pretty like steamy romance, he'll still he'll still pass them out to his friends. And I'm like, Dad, you don't have to you don't have to pass that one out. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's got a shirtless man on the cover. You don't have to you don't have to pass that one out. But he's he's uh, he's a huge cheerleader now. Like and I and I don't I don't think he, you know, uh, I think he was just a practical dad, you know, practical Asian American dad who's like, how are you going to pay the bills? But now he's he likes to brag. He likes to brag now. So he's he's definitely in my corner for sure. Yeah, like uh, parents who think that journalism is a proper career. Well, you're in for a rude awakening. There's the, the, the trenches are quite deep. I kind of feel like. Asian parents saying journalism's a practical career is just them settling like, well, my child likes to write. At least this is like a respectable writing job. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, I, I work for newspapers. So and, and at that, you know, they they've been dying for 20 years. So it's been, you know, it was it was kind of a rough sell anyway. Yeah. But how is that jump from um, covering news? I'm guessing. I mean, the news cycle is very grim. It relies on a lot of, uh, let's say, crime and tragedies. How is it going from that to writing happily ever after? Yeah, you know, I, I well, for one, it was a relief, I think, because um, for several years at the newspaper, I was on the crime beat. So I was always being sent out to these terrible situations, these, uh, you know, um, 
to interview uh, the the families of murder victims or, you know, DUI accidents or I mean, it was just like one tragedy after another. And uh, my my I kept asking to get off that beat. But my editor was like, but, you know, but you're you know, you're so good at it. You've got that. What is that? What is that thing they say? Oh yeah, empathy, empathy. You've got that empathy thing, and then you go, and then you go and you talk to people, and people want to talk to you. And I'm like, great, great, because I I would feel so bad coming to these homes, and I would knock on the door, and I'd be like, I'm so sorry to be here, like basically on the worst day of your life. Um, if you please tell me to leave, and then normally they were so kind, and they came in, and they would want to talk about their loved one because who, who wouldn't you know want to um, say all the good things about them and not the you know and have them remembered in the way you want. But uh, so it, it was, that was a hard job. It was, it, it was like one of those jobs that kind of sticks with you for a time. And some of those stories stick with you and the, yeah, it's, so I'm very happy to be in this happily ever after space now <laughs> where, where I get to control. There's, there's, you know, if tragedy happens, then good things happen too. So it's much better now. Let me just say that. <laughs> well, you published so many books under Kara Lockwood. I have to ask, like, is this, your first book publishing under uh, your maiden name? Yes, it is. It is, and I'm I'm very excited about it. Um, you know, I I I just feel like it's truly me. You know, and um, and it just so happened that you know Carol Lockwood was my name at the time when I got my my first book. But I also don't feel like it fully expressed who I am. You know, um, and I I have um, my cousin Dana Tanamachi is an is an artist and. Uh, she was so excited when I told her I was going to be using my maiden name. And she's like, go Tanamachi. <laughs> let's, let's, <laughs> let's do this because uh, Tanamachi is a fairly um, unusual Japanese name. So, um, you know, us cousins have to stick together. <laughs> yeah, I was curious about um, your, your previous author name because actually a lot of Asian American authors early on in their publication journey, they're encouraged to go by a pen name that doesn't show that they're Asian. And I was wondering if that was uh, the same situation, but it wasn't. Yeah, it, it, it just happened to be happenstance. Although I will say, you know, um, I do, I, you know, if, if I had tried under my maiden name, I do wonder if I would have gotten resistance because I, I do have a lot of friends, um, Asian American romance writers who, who felt that, you know, and, and other writers too, who still, who felt that, you know, if they weren't, you know, sort of generic enough that 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 might be a stumbling block for them. But, um, you know, I think I think thankfully things are changing. I don't know if they're changing fast enough, but thankfully things are changing. Well, we've been doing this podcast for a number of years now, and I can say that it has gotten better. Uh, It's been nice to see uh, more Asian American romance authors. We actually have like an entire category on our bookshop affiliate page. And it just makes me so happy because for a very long time, love interests weren't like we didn't have Asian American love interests. And then on top of that, like mixed race, multi-ethnic love interests. And I couldn't help but notice that your main character in um, the second you're single and also your previous novels, you have uh, mixed race characters. Can you talk about how your own background uh, shaped those characters experiences. Yeah. As I, as I mentioned before, um, uh, you know, my, my dad's Japanese American, my mom is Irish, Scottish American. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the South, uh, and it was, uh, it, you know, I think it's, it's for people with, with, um, blended backgrounds, I think it can be difficult because I, I have had that experience where, you know, I'm, 
I'm I'm not Asian enough and I'm not white enough and I'm you know and how do I fit into these different groups and um and I, and I I feel like that that um you know people with multiracial backgrounds can bring a very interesting viewpoint you know and I and I write characters like that because I'm just authentically writing what I know and my own story um and I think it's it's becoming more common and will even be more common you know in the future that there are more uh, blended families. There are more people with multi multiracial backgrounds, and I, I think that's what makes America great. You know, I, I think that's such a strength that we have, and I think those stories are so important because, um, you know, they they are becoming more common, and uh, and 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 they're a part of they're part of who we are. Yeah, I mean, romance has been such a like the genre as. The genre has been kind of like narrow for a really long time on, you know, heteronormative and, you know, Western beauty standards. So it is nice that we're getting uh, more diversity, not just in race, but also in like disability and and whatnot. Um, So moving on to your newest book, The Second You're Single. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Can you give us a quick elevator pitch? Yeah, it's really about um, the main character, uh, Sora, is uh, uh, like like me. She comes from, um, you know, a Japanese and European background. Uh, she she has had some very difficult times dating. She lives in the Chicago area, which I do, too. And uh, she's uh, she's basically, you know, burnt out on dating. So she decides to take she ties really just a boycott um, um, Valentine's Day. So she decides to make February her hashtag go solo month. And um, the second, basically the very day she decides that she meets an amazing person <laughs> that, that could be the one. And it challenges her um, resolve to, you know, focus on herself for a while. And uh, it also challenges her views on love. So I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a story that's deeply rooted in my own personal experience because I was, um, a divorced mom for eight years and, uh, dated for a long time and in a difficult setting. And, uh, and there were times where I gave up on Valentine's day and love in general too. And, uh, but found my way back. Thankfully, (laughs) thankfully I'm happily married now. As someone who has never been on a dating app, thank God, um, <laughs> what what were some of your unexpected dates? I, I, I won't say misfortunate, but unexpected. <laughs> um, my very first, so newly divorced, I'm, deci- I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to try these apps. Let, let me try this. Uh, my very first date, um, I went to a coffee shop. And uh, showed up. He looked absolutely nothing like his picture. (laughs) This was clearly not him. And then about um, uh, five minutes into the date, he told me he was married. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, and I said, but, but, you know, why didn't you put, you said you were, you were divorced on your, on your profile. And he said, he said, well, you know, if you, if I had said I was married, would you have met me? (laughs) like well no (laughs) so I'm like okay well I think I think this this date's over as I was trying to leave he said wait I've made something for you and then he pulls out a Ziploc bag it's filled with um, peanuts raisins like pretzels and he says this is the trail mix that I make for my coworkers." and I'm thinking okay First of all, it's gotta gotta be roofied. Like there have to be roofies in that. <laughs> and like and um 
like a tra- and it's in a Ziploc bag, you know, just like, you know. That's super sketch. Yeah. First day trail mix is not a killer move that I was picturing. <laughs> right. And also we'd never talked about hiking or snack foods or anything like that. Um, I had to take, I don't know. I don't know if it was just ultra politeness in me. I, I don't know. Cause you know, on the, on my dad's side, you know, there's just, there's just, I don't know, Japanese politeness. And on my mom's side, there's like Southern politeness. And it's just this tsunami of politeness <laughs> where we just can't, I don't know. So but I just pick it up and I basically run, you know, run out. I was meeting um, some friends for dinner and I took the trail mix and I put it on the table and I said, is this what happens with app dating? Is this what happens? <laughs> like, is this, do, do, does everybody just get trail mix at the end of their date? Um, thankfully, they said no, that, that I should try it again. Yeah, I'm wondering if that actually works on anybody. If <laughs> that's like a proven strategy for this guy. I don't guy. know. Maybe it was his, also his first app date. I don't know. <laughs> but I think everyone wants their meet cute moment um, that's shown in like rom-com movies. And Sora has a meet cute, but it's also kind of a, a nightmare in, in the beginning. <laughs> can you talk, can you tell us a little bit more about that scene? Yeah, so she's she's just post, uh, you know, bad breakup and uh, she's she's at the grocery store um, and, you know, maybe feeling a little, a pity party, which we can, we can all have now and again, but uh, you know, she, she, she runs into this um, very handsome baker handing out samples. And I mean, who doesn't love samples really? Come on, you know, little torts, come on, the desserts, please at the bakery. I'm all over it. So, um, you know, she, she meets this very cute baker and, and they're getting along swimmingly and everything seems to be going great and then uh who crashes the party but her ex-husband and his new girlfriend and it's it's it spirals from a meet cute to a complete nightmare for her unfortunately but but uh, keep reading keep reading that's all i have to say it gets better yeah i really like the um the conceit of because it's this is how it always happens right like the moment you decide you don't want something anymore you find it and I don't know if it's just the universe speaking or just luck in general, but I've known not a few amount of people actually who has had this happen to them when they, they swear off dating and all of a sudden they're like, damn it, I met someone. Or they decide I'm going to date everyone I can see. And then, oh, I found the one. <laughs> right. I, I think that happens a lot. And I think, um, you know, I know that's happened in my friend group as well. And I, I think um, I think the basis of it is when we're when we're focused almost too hard on dating and, you know, and trying to find someone that we're not actually relaxed and being ourselves, our authentic selves. And I think when there's a freedom in saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about dating. I'm not worried about who I'm going to meet. I'm just going to live my life. And then I think you're both relaxed, but also more yourself. And then when you're more yourself, you, you, you know, I think you're more, you're better able to like meet a better person for you you know, then somebody who checks all the boxes from your family or the list you have in your brain or, you know, I think, um, so, so sometimes it's, sometimes it definitely is luck, but I also think you become more yourself when you're more relaxed and less pressured and, you know, kind of taken, taken the, um, you know, the pressure off yourself to find someone. I think then you, then you often do. Yeah, as someone who was determined to stay single for her entire life, um, I I met my partner in college and we've been together for like over 11 years now. So 
Um, yeah, people were were joking, be like, oh, you say that, you know, you want to stay single forever, but watch, you're going to be the first person who, like, gets a boyfriend or girlfriend. And I'm like, that's never going to happen. But it did happen. So <laughs> I think I just think love is amazing. You know, I mean, you know, like in the movie Love Actually, love is all around. It's it's incredibly <laughs> powerful. And it's, uh, you know, it. It finds a way, I think, even for people trying to keep it out, even people working very hard to keep it out. It it finds a way. It's sneaky, that love. Yeah, it is sneaky. Uh, but Sora, your main character, she uh, I guess you have two main characters because your book uh, switches POVs. But Sora is very cynical. She's like Valentine's Day is the worst. I have a personal vendetta against it. And then you have. And then you have Jack, the handsome baker, who, you know, actually had a crush on Sora since kindergarten. And I just thought that was kind of rare to have a guy who believed in love and also, you know, held on to a childhood crush for this long. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. I just I'm I'm a sucker for sweethearts. And uh, Jack's a sweetheart. You know, he's he's um he's he's a romantic at heart you know he 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 believes in love he um you know believes in the one and uh and and i think it does take some a little bit of courage to you know um be a romantic these days i think everything is you know presented to you know love is presented pretty cynically and and often and you know often happens that way but but jack's a sweetheart and uh you know i i just i i just love that that mentality of somebody who um you know believes in love and and looks for love yeah i mean your book is about you know it's a rom-com it's about you know finding the one but it also takes a hard look at like the idea of how love is not only packaged, but expressed in like culture, media, society, you know, Sora, even though she's a cynic, is also coming off being a serial monogamist, right? She's been through a series of of relationships and because she feels like she needs to be in one because it's what society expects from her, but she just keeps picking the wrong guys. And you know, this leads her to, you know, become like a singles guru, right? When she creates um, a hashtag movement about going single in February, um, which also adds like that adds that, that rom-com wrench into it, right? Where she's trying to be this spokesperson for self-care and not buying into the Valentine's uh, mythos, but then finding the one person that she really, really digs. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Sora does have to do a lot of soul searching and and as much as because I think she she starts the the hashtag movement she she you know really says okay I am going to take some time for myself but almost immediately uh you know is is not taking time for herself she's still looking outward for that satisfaction for that you know validation that she's she's looked for in all of her previous relationships and you know I think eventually she does have to do you know her own soul searching about you know what it is that um you know, that she has to provide herself first before she can, you know, really love somebody else and have someone love her fully in return. So I, I think, you know, she, she, she'll, she'll get there. She'll get there. And I think, I think, a, I think a lot of us look to um, our relationships to, um, to bring us satisfaction and, but also to define us. And, you know, and ultimately we, we have to, you know, define ourselves and our relationships are amazing and a wonderful part of our lives, but we also have to have that core first, the core self-love before we can 
love others. Yeah. And I like that this is where you inject a little bit of what I assume to be that that Japanese American upbringing, which is, you know, not being the nail that sticks out because it gets hammered down, which I believe is a Japanese proverb, right? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. My my parents constantly, they they um, uh, often fought about this because my, my dad basically wanted to blend in and my mom wanted to be outspoken and change things because, you know, um, my dad was conventional and my mom was a little more liberal. And so, you know, she would be political. She wanted to be political and outspoken. And my dad wanted to be like, let's just blend in. Let's just not make a scene. <laughs> let's just be quiet, you know? Um, so there was that, there was that constant back and forth. So I, I had a front row seat to both sides of <laughs> that, of that argument. But, uh, but yeah. And I think, I think Sora herself in her own family had a lot of that, um, that internalization of, you know, don't speak out. Like just, you know, be conventional. And I think eventually she learns that um, she does just need to be herself, be her authentic self. And, and her and her family supports her in that in the end. In the end. In yeah. the end. They, have, um. they, they might need a little <laughs> they might need a little uh, persuading. But by the end. Yeah, I mean, like Marvin said, um, it is a very Japanese thing to blend in. And I think that's at least for Japanese Americans, I think it's because of the history that they've had in this country for, you know, simply being Japanese during uh, World War II. And, you know, that has affected, uh, you know, future generations. And I think that mindset is still there. Oh, absolutely. And and for my family, personally, we uh, my my grandparents um, uh, met in an internment camp in Arizona. So they met each other and got married there. Um, at, you know, in the late teens, they're, they're like, they were, I think my grandmother was 18 or 19 and my grandfather was like 20 or, or something like that. They got, they got married in the camps and, uh, that was very much a part of our, our family story of, um, my, my grandfather's family in California owned a small grocery store and they were interned and his father was taken to a, uh, taken away by the FBI in the night and they didn't know what had happened to him. And, um, my grandmother, they were, um, sharecroppers who, you know, also lost everything. And that, that story, I mean, my, uh, grandfather for a long time never wanted to put his money in a bank because he felt like the very, the very minute he did, it would be taken. So it was, it was very much, um, part of our family, family story. And, uh, you know, my, my grandmother liked to talk about the, the perseverance and um, the spirit of uh, collaboration and, and how um, so many families helped one another in this time and, you know, grew beautiful gardens. And my grandfather was focused more on, you know, uh, let's watch our backs. <laughs> you, know, let's, you know, this could this could happen again. So, yeah, I think ultimately my my dad brought away from that, you know, let's just you know, work hard, keep your head down. Don't, don't, you know, don't stand out. Don't say anything, you know, things can happen one way or another. So yeah. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. And even, um, in my, when I was growing up in Texas in history class, I would be, you know, there, there weren't, you know, there weren't many Asian Americans in my class and, and I was the only Japanese American in my class. And I was the, the only one able to talk about the internment camps and they weren't even mentioned, you know, in our history class in Texas, like they, it wasn't even taught. And so I, there was a lot of focus on Pearl Harbor and I understand that, but 
you know, there wasn't any focus on the internment camps. So I was the only one raising my hand, being the nail, being the nail, <laughs> you know, saying, oh, there's this thing that happens, <laughs> you know, and then the teacher would be like, oh, yeah, actually, that did happen. OK, let's moving on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, speaking of curriculum, I mean, this is a sidebar, um, you know, like book bans have been on the rise, especially in Texas. And I'm not sure if it was Texas or if this was Kansas, but recently uh, Julie Otsuka's book, uh, Buddha in the Attic, I think, um, which is about Japanese internment camps, uh, it got banned from um, a school curriculum because they said, oh, it's going to make, you know, it, it's like too much for our kids. Like, we don't want uh, the non-Asian kids to feel bad about what happened in this country. <laughs> and I'm like, what about the Asian kids who literally have families who were in these camps? Exactly, exactly. Well, and I I mean, uh, you know, I'm an author, so I'm absolutely against any ban book banning of any kind. But, um, you know, I, I think that argument that we're going to feel bad is, um, it's a false argument. It's a false argument. And I would, I would really point, um, point to Germany and how they... Uh, how they discuss and educate their kids about the Holocaust. And, you know, they don't shy away from it and they're honest about it. And it, it's a thing that it's not, we should, we don't, it's not about making people feel bad. It's about being honest about where we came from so that this doesn't happen again. You know, if, if, if you don't talk about it, if you're not honest about it, then, you know, um, it could happen again. And I think the idea that kids would feel bad I think is selling all the kids short, you know, and I think that's more the parents feeling bad than the kids would feel bad. And so I would ask the parents to take a look at themselves about why they feel bad, you know, because they probably <laughs> weren't making the decisions in, you know, um, in the forties, you know what I mean? Like they, they didn't run those camps, but did they agree with it now? Is that why they feel bad? Like, why are you feeling bad? You know, let's, Maybe let's, you know. Maybe do some soul searching. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it sounds like the parents I mean, are feeling bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's really the point of, like, it's not about feeling bad. Like, I read books sometimes that are, you know, grimdark. And it's not like it's bad that I feel sad about things. But it makes me reflect. Like, you know, reading your book and reflecting on some of the self-harmy, self-esteem ways that I put myself down or that, you know, some toxic things that I might have done in the past. You read it, you say, oh, maybe I should reflect on myself. And then you hopefully become a better person, right? Absolutely. And that's the whole point of, I think, looking at history honestly, too, to really take a look at that and take the lessons you can from it. And, you know, I mean, burying things and ignoring things just uh, doesn't help us evolve or become better people. It, you know, that doesn't that doesn't help anybody. Um, but Marvin just brought up uh, self esteem and looking into our own uh, toxic way of thinking. And I do want to bring up uh, Sora's. You know, Sora is described to be size fourteen. She uh, is mid size, and she seems to be hyper conscious of her body and also the body of others. Um, in the book, I couldn't help but notice that uh, there was a lot of like fixation on uh, weight and also just the way people look. Uh, why did you decide to give that character trait to Sora? Yeah, you know, um, I've done a lot of thinking about this because I, I've had some, um, you know, early, early reviews of the book that people have pointed this out um, about the book. Uh, 
And I actually have, have done some personal soul searching around this because um, people did take issue with some of Sora's thoughts. And um, some of them are my thoughts. You know, I, I have um, my own issues with weight, just my personal issues with weight. And, uh, you know, I, I have um, it's been a time where I've I've because of the feedback I've gotten, uh, you know, around the book, I have um, dug deeper and uh I've been uh, working with a, a body image therapist a little to like just just dig out my, you know, take a look at my own my own issues because I Sora was my way of um, kind of delving into some of these issues that I've had in, in my family. And I, I think that there's a lot of pressure, you know, to look a certain way and um, certainly um, and sometimes that can be internalized in a bad way. Um, I think me. Ultimately, Sora gets to a place of self-acceptance. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that, you know, I I mean, I think we all have work to do, but, you know, I, I take it very seriously. So, you know, I've, I've been doing some work on myself, too, to, to explore some of these issues. And I think sometimes you don't know they exist unless you put them out there, you know. And, um, you know, I, I for anybody who, you know, feels Sora is, is too hard on her, other people and herself, you know, I'm... I am sorry about that, um, but I but I have been doing some work on myself, and you know I'm a work in progress. I mean, we're all work in progresses, and you know, like it is a way that a lot of people think. I mean, there's a reason why advertisements and you know the beauty industry they capitalize on insecurity, and um, I thought it was really interesting that. Uh, even though Sora is very conscious of her body and thinks that you know. You know, comparing herself to her mom and her sister, who are like very health conscious and uh, very much like, yeah, you have to exercise, you have to uh, diet. Keto is the way. Um, but like from Jack's POV and also um, his brother, they mentioned that, you know, she's really beautiful. She's hot. And it's like not a perspective that uh, you really see of people who are not conventionally attractive or slim. Right. Right. And I, well, I think, I think um, the other thing about um, Sora is that she's also dealing with a very complex relationship with her mother who is also not happy with her weight. And I think um, despite trying to be healthy, there's still a lot of, I think um, many, many of us is, have have difficulty with this self-image and some of it comes from our family and our, our immediate relationships and some of the feedback we may be getting from our parents some of it is from our peers and some of it's from ourselves and some of it's from society as a whole and I think um you know Sora is definitely a, a creature of um her family you know and and I think she I think the fact that um her mom praises her sister a lot and her, her sister who is who is um you know, um, a smaller size than her has, she's internalized that a great deal, but you know, Jack and, and, uh, his brother see her as she is. So I, w I hope that that comes across too, for sure. Yeah. I mean, part of the story is kind of rejecting this, um, like mass media version of Valentine's day and love and what love should look like and what you should look like to deserve love. Because, you know, in real life, it doesn't happen that way. Not everyone is like, a supermodel and not everyone likes that stuff you know and again you know this story is ultimately about Sora's coming to accept 
herself as someone who deserves good things, which is, you know, it's it's what we want from a a rom-com, right? Right, right. And, you know, Jack struggled with his own body issues, too. So I think it's, you know, it's unfortunately everywhere, I think. But uh, but yeah, I think what I hope people take away from the book is that um, we're all deserving of love and, you know, we should all have it. Yeah, I mean, also, we can't divorce the fact that like uh, Asian culture really focuses on uh, your weight and your slimness. I mean, it's so ingrained in our culture and it doesn't help that, you know, as diasporans, as Americans, we have a different diet and therefore our body grows in in a different way. So when our parents are like, why aren't you as as slim as when I was when I was a teen? It's like, well, it's a different generation. It's a different diet. Um yeah, I mean, like as someone who, you know, was severely underweight uh, growing up as a teen, like people used to really compliment me on being skinny. And, you know, like my doctors would say, actually, this is not very good. You you really need to gain weight. And um, it's just a lot of priority is placed on looks rather than health and yeah, hopefully that is changing in our culture. I feel like it is because for a long time, like Asian American girls, uh, they, a lot of them had eating disorders and uh, a lot of like body dysmorphia. I feel like it's gotten better in terms of exploring that and talking more about it. And I'm glad I'm glad we are talking more about it because I, I agree with you, like at any any big family gathering, it would inevitably always be something there'd be something about weight like there'd be something about like oh you've it's like so the first weight. thing yeah, that the they first. that they yeah, mentioned like you open the door and they're like yeah. oh did you gain weight <laughs> exactly. like did you gain weight did you lose weight like it's it's not the hair it's have not- some food <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh yes. eat my food and it's like yes. you can't you can't just do that you can't just criticize our weight and then <laughs> give us a I ton know. of food, which I is know. your love language, and exactly. then criticize us for exactly. eating. <laughs> I have been there. I have been there. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, like in closing, I just want to ask, like, have you done your own hashtag go solo? Or I guess like, was there ever a moment where you're like, I really need to uh, prioritize self-care. Yes. Yeah, I, I have, I have because this, this, um, I mean, I, uh, the, the eight years that I was a a single mom and dating, um, I, I did multiple, I did multiple breaks of dating and just like, I'm not going to date and I'm just going to do self-care and I'm just going to focus on myself. Um, they didn't, the first one didn't end up with, you know, meeting my soulmate, but, uh, I think going through those and doing those, um, it was, very, very beneficial just to take some time to myself. And, and also I think doing that helps, helps us learn that we're, we can, you know, we're, we're good on our own, you know, I mean, you want, you, many of us want a partner and, you know, if you don't want a partner, that's fine. But for the people who do want a partner, knowing that you can be happy on your own is, is important too. I think, uh, I think we all need to, to feel that, you know, so that, um, you know, we're just a little more, secure in ourselves and love ourselves a little more. But yeah, I, I have, I have done the, I have done the hashtag go solo (laughs) deliberately and sometimes not deliberately, but but several times deliberately. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, we can follow uh, Sora on her journey of attempting to go solo with the second year single. Um, Kara, thank you once again so much for joining us on Book Symbol, but it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. And thanks for all that you do for Asian American authors. I just appreciate it so much. And that was our conversation with Kara Tanamachi, the author of the second year single. And those of you listening close enough might have heard that her audio seems extra crisp. And that's because she was actually chatting with us um, on a really fancy um, podcasting setup. Because I guess she has a podcast of her own, right? Yeah, it's called Skip to the Good Part. And um, she talks to romance authors, actually. So uh, very cool. And for those of you who are planning to read this second, you're single. Uh, just a few trigger warnings I would like to give out. Uh, there is um, some body image insecurities. And there's also um, a mention of miscarriage. So if those are things that, are, that you're particularly sensitive to, I would say proceed with caution. Um, but moving on from that, Marvin, what is, do you have any Valentine's Day stories that you would like to share with our listeners as a closing? <laughs> Not really. I don't really have, Not really. We don't really do Valentine's Day, me and my partner. Um, we've kind of agreed to just keep things chill, which I appreciate. Um, when we were dating, our Valentine's Day date was actually just going to soup plantation, the soup and salad bar when it was still open before the pandemic shut it down. I actually, it's funny because I actually got into, speaking of like the expectations and importance society places on grand gestures and Valentine's Day, I actually got into a fight with a really good friend who thought I wasn't doing enough for Valentine's Day. Like it got into like, like she was screaming at me. It was, I, I still vividly remember. <laughs> I mean, as long as your partner doesn't mind or you've talked about it. Yeah. I mean... Okay, I guess it wouldn't be fair if I didn't share a Valentine's Day story on my end, but I actually moved to LA on Valentine's Day. Oh, um, so romantic. Yeah, and yeah, so romantic. Uh, Dan and I uh, moved across the country, re- literally across the country from New York to LA, and our things haven't, like, our things weren't ready, so literally we slept in a bare apartment with just blankets there were no furniture we had just the clothes in our suitcase that was it that was our valentine's day so uh yeah what that was our first valentine's day now that i think about it <laughs> you know it really sets the tone right <laughs> now, this is what i feel bad about those people who do do grand gestures and you know if that's your thing you know all the power to you it just sounds so stressful to have to come up with something bigger and better every year Personally, I am very happy with our chill Valentine's um, traditions. I mean, Dan does a lot of grand gestures, too. So I've had the best of both worlds. I've had the grand gestures and the very chill Valentine's Day. I think there was a Valentine's Day when both of us had, like, the flu and it was really awful. So, like, what our Valentine's Day uh, dinner was was just, like, soup and (laughs) watching a really bad movie. So hey. honestly, love comes in all expressions and forms. Yeah, you make good memories, and that's what it's all about in the end. 
All right. So as a reminder for our February、uh, book club pick, we are reading *The Charmed List* by Julie Abe、uh, to continue our our February theme of reading rom coms.、Um, so if you have already finished the book and have some thoughts to share,、um, please let us know on our Goodreads. As always, we love to include your feedback on our discussion episodes, and it's just nice to know that people are reading along with us.、Uh, but on that note, I'm wishing everyone who's celebrating a very happy Valentine's Day. And、uh, we'll see you all next time on Books and Boba. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu, and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to @booksandboba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Ramen. How are folks still racist? I know, right? We're like two decades into the 21st century. Yeah. And second question: Where's my jetpack? Well, I can't help you there, but have I got a podcast for you? Modern Minorities is a show where each week my longtime pal Ramen and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah, Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, climate activists, angry Asians, athletes, chefs, writers, folks who are black, brown, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, comics. Creator Jean Lunyang and many, many more. We've even talked about Ramadan, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority.